Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. This Encore Podcast with Susan Faludi was first posted on October 5th, 2016. In the Dark Room won the Kirkus Prize in 2016 and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in 2017. It is Susan Faludi's most recent book to date. My guest is Susan Faludi. Correct pronunciation? It is. The Hungarian way of saying it is Faludi, but I grew up in a very Italian neighborhood, so it became Italianized, Americanized <laughs> at an early age. The first thing I learned is I was mispronouncing my own last name. The name was Friedman, your father's name originally, right. which is in the book In the Dark Room. Susan Faludi is also the author of three other books, The Terror Dream, Stiffed and Backlash, The Undeclared War Against American Women, which from what I can tell right now has continued without pause. <laughs> yes, no, and I'm afraid Stiffed, which is a book about American masculinity and about the, you know, the so-called angry white man is, uh, could be uh, reissued verbatim to describe the Trump season. Let's talk about In the Dark Room. In the Dark Room, is about your father who left, was thrown out of your home when you were a teenager, wound up back in his native Hungary, and then had a sex change operation. And you tried to figure out what the hell this was about. What brought you to write the book when you began thinking about reconnecting with your father? First of all, you, you were not connected with him or what? The story is kind of three-dimensional chess. There are many different identity transformations unfolded in my father's life, culminating with my father's decision to undergo sex reassignment surgery in 2004, so about 12 years ago. And my father and I had barely spoken in more than a quarter century because my father, when I was growing up, was a domineering, controlling, autocratic, and uh, even violent father and husband to my mother, who had to be in control of every household decision, large and small, and forbade my mother from working down to the you know smallest things like he got the good cold cuts, we got the bad ones. But his behavior, particularly toward the end of my parents' uh, marriage, when he became quite violent and my mother had to get two restraining orders and finally the police removed him from the house. And this uh, not only led to our long estrangement, but also sparked my early feminism. So that's sort of where things remained until 2004 when I received an email from my father saying, you know, dear Susan, I have some interesting news for you. I've decided I've had enough of being a, of impersonating, as you put it, a violent, aggressive man that I've never been inside. In the phone conversation that followed this email, I asked if we could reconnect. And my father proposed that I write her story 
Uh, so that was the beginning of this collaboration. During that period between when he left and 2004, it's not really that clear and in the dark room. Had you had any communication with him? You you said you went to Israel at one point. Oh well, Israel came afterward. That was okay. once my father had invited me back in, and I was collecting. I was collecting a string on who you know my father's past and the larger diaspora of my Hungarian Jewish family. But between the time in you know 1976 when my father was thrown out of the house and 2004 when we reunited. We spoke on occasion. It was mostly, you know, and then when email came in, there were some email exchanges. I wrote uh, my father letters. I sent my father my books. And we saw each other, you know, at some formal events like, you know, a wedding or a graduation, those sort of things. But basically, these weren't meaningful encounters. That phone call and that email saying that he was going to have a sex change operation, it sounds as if it was sort of random, it did feel like a bolt from the blue. You know, I knew growing up that my father was extremely hidden. And I was aware that my father seemed to always be putting on, you know, different guises, different masks. I mean, they basically took the form of being this frenetic sportsman, rock climbing, ice climbing, sailing. Uh, my father's behest, we were in like training to bicycle across the Alps and eventually did that together. And there was always a costume to go along with it. But I knew there was something about my father that didn't add up. You know, I can't say that this was the key that explained everything. You know, people are more complicated than that. There's not one smoking gun. And my father had a lot of issues around identity and where she belonged. And this was sort of the culminating one. But there were many other issues about my father's national identity, political identity, and especially religious identity, which were all part of the mix. Susan Faludi, in reading In the Dark Room, many of the sequences take place when you're in Budapest with your father. I kept getting this cognitive dissonance, my father, she. (sighs) When you were writing it, were you getting that same dissonance? A couple things about that. Uh, First of all, I wanted to honor how my father wanted to be recognized. And my father said to me uh, on a number of occasions, I'm still your father. (laughs) So I thought, okay, (laughs) you cannot take that away. I mean, that is at the core of our relationship as a father and a, a daughter. On the other hand, my father also wanted to be recognized as she. So I wanted that to be part of the book. The added issue of interest as far as gender pronouns go is that Hungarian, even though Hungary is an extremely conservative place when it comes to gender roles, Hungarian itself has no gendered pronouns. So this actually was not an issue in in Hungarian, but certainly came up in writing in English. The other part is that the voice, you know, I interview a lot of fiction writers, they talk about voice. The voice of your father when you're recounting as a teenager and when you're telling the story about his last years, Mm -hmm. because he died in 2015, when you're talking about that, it's the same voice. It's a very male voice. It sounds male to me when Mm -hmm. I'm reading it on the page. How was it when you're actually talking to her? 
Well, you know, one of the things I came away in thinking about the larger question of identity, and this very much is a book ultimately about identity, not just the transgender experience, was that, you know, we are not, our identity is not simply something we can choose and then erase what came before. And my father remained a person with a lot of grievances and with a lot of anger and a way of expressing it that was very deeply ingrained. I think my father very much wanted to break out of that and wanted to be less hidden, wanted to to be more open. My father always said, I feel as a woman I can communicate more. And my father did make some steps toward that. But the reality is, as anyone who's ever gone to therapy knows that, you know, Dramatic changes in personality don't happen that often. But over time, my father was able to push the door of her hiddenness open a bit. And and that, you know, was for her and for our relationship a victory. The title of the book, In the Dark Room, is a metaphor and a reality. A lot of these trans people are involved in photography, and even more so, your dad in his metaphor, or her metaphor, was constantly remaking photos through Photoshop. In the dark room is not just a metaphor in my father's life, but a a literal experience in that my father spent her entire career working in a dark room. My father was a high-end commercial photographic developer and did most of her, then his, work for fashion and beauty magazines. My father was kind of the go-to person for a while for Condé Nast to make, these were kind of wonderful metaphors for a writer, to make the perfect copy from the original, so you couldn't tell the difference between the original and the copy. Um, And also all those pre-Photoshop tricks of the trade, montages, masking, dodging. My father referred to what he did at that point as trick photography. So there were many, many years when my father literally lived in the darkroom. Later on, when he's doing the Photoshop and you knowing that your father's life has been spent altering physical identity. Did you ever mention the parallel to him? Yes, we talked about it. And my father said, yes, well, you know, I'm very good at that. And now I'm applying it to myself. Now, my father was very aware of, of that. Once the age of Photoshop came in was a sort of an obsessive Photoshopper. At one point, after I'd gone to Israel to see my father's side of the family, I came back with this trove of old, old pictures and uh, scanned them in and sent them to my father. And she wrote back to me later and said, these are okay, but they're they're really not any good because you can't Photoshop them. (laughs) In a sense, your father was cutting edge in that her view toward reality was the view, in a sense, of the reality television producer. Interesting. Yes, well, my father's view from early on, and I think this has everything to do with the early experiences in my father's life, particularly during the Holocaust, was that reality was something to manipulate, to alter. It was absolutely essential to save my father's life as a, as a child in Holocaust Hungary to 
as she put it, impersonate herself. I mean, she often said to me, quote unquote, I impersonate myself. So there was always sort of a step away, stage managing reality. And that was a reality for my father from an early time. But it also sort of explains his later friendship with Hungarian anti-Semites, even though he was Jewish. Because when my father was a teenager, in order to survive, my father you know, was living, I mean, during those years between the age of 13 and 17, living on the streets, surviving by passing as a Christian uh, with nothing but false identity papers and a fascist armband. So this was learned talent that was fundamental to to my father's sense of who she was. Susan Faludi, when you first went there and, and she suggested, let's write the book, let's mm-hmm. do the book, you had some problems in that you had to organize this thing and you had to figure out which areas you were going to cover, obviously transgender, and I assume you had to cover Hungary because mm-hmm. that was his early days. But it seemed as if the story of the Holocaust maybe took a far greater part of the book than you might have intended. I always knew that was pretty essential. I mean, growing up, I was desperate to know the larger story. And, you know, like a lot of children of Holocaust-era survivors, I had only little bits and pieces because typical of parents of that generation who endured the Holocaust. My father was very reluctant to talk about it. It it, My father wanted to just slam the door on that all. For example, you know, I mean, I had four little bare-bones anecdotes, the most significant of which was that my father said that he had saved his parents from the Hungarian Nazi-era cross when he was a child. And I would say, well, how did you do that? And my father said, well, I had an armband. And I said, yes. <laughs> you know, I was, I, even at a young age, I was an aspiring reporter and thought I could just, you know, get information out of anybody. And that's all I would get. My father would just say, well, well, I, so that's it. So I saved them. Going into it was very motivated to find out the story of my father's past because he had really blacked it out when I was a child. And I mean, I think this goes to a a sort of fundamental struggle that my father and I had that speaks to the larger issue of identity and became the kind of controlling central question of the book, which is, you know, is identity what you choose to be or is it the very thing you can't escape? And that was a fundamental question in my father's life. And we struggled over that. And then I would ask about the past. I'd ask about you know, my father's relationship with his parents or with, you know, the wartime traumas or with my father's violent chapter in my life. And my father's answer would, in the first few years after we reconnected, was always, well, that was then, and I was a different person then, so it's it's no longer relevant. And it was only in our later years that my father began slowly to open up and tell me about the person my father was pre-transition. Those attributes didn't, in fact, go away and were a part of who my father was until her dying day. You're a feminist, and your book, Backlash, made you a very well-known one. 
the trans world, as you describe in the dark room, and as I know from other people I've spoken with, men who feel inside their women, when they become women, and I've interviewed Kate Bornstein and I interviewed Jan Morris, that view of what a woman is, is very much a stereotype that a feminist is fighting against. So when you found out, was that going through your mind? Well, when I found out, I didn't know a whole lot about the transgender experience. This was 2004. So, you know, this was pre-Caitlyn Jenner, pre-transparent. You know, I had done some interviews for my book, actually, for my book on masculinity and talked to some people who are central to the Stonewall uprising. But that was about it. And so after I got the news, I went to the library and began reading. At the time, I was living in Portland, Oregon. And so I was at the Portland Public Library, which there's actually a fairly significant trans community in Portland. So the library was better stocked than most, but it was mostly older trans memoirs that I was reading, like Jan Morris's. You know, as you say, of, of the older generation of which my father certainly belonged, you know, and I think one thing I haven't mentioned is that when my father had sex reassignment surgery, uh, she was 76 years old. So that older generation tended, and of course, this is a gross generalization, or at least among trans folks who wrote memoirs that I was reading, tended to have a vision of femininity that was of that era, that was, you know, very you know, what we think of now as 1950s, kind of Marilyn Monroe, va-va-voom. And my father was certainly enamored of that that image and aspired to emulate it, you know, with a lot of frills and, um, you know, kind of stiletto heels and um, overflowing cleavage and, and whatnot. You know, my, over time, my father sort of settled into herself and, you know, and let go of that caricatured persona. That has changed dramatically since. I mean, the newer generation of trans theorists and trans activists have embraced a very different definition of the word trans. It's not transitioning from one gender to another. It's trying to find a way to transcend the whole gender binary and think in very different and expansive terms about gender. Well, that was the difference, I think, between talking with Jan Morris and talking with Kate Bornstein. Absolutely, in yes. In fact, at that point, you began to settle into understanding that feminism and trans were not necessarily opposition. Right. I mean, ultimately, especially, you know, observing my father sort of become someone who was sort of gender-wise, at least, kind of undefinable, or was so, you know, idiosyncratic in herself that you couldn't actually label her neatly, was an experience that, you know, deepened and reaffirmed my feminist, fundamental feminist belief that gender is fluid and that we are all more complicated than the sex roles society imposes on us which is something that the new generation of trans theorists believe as well. So I think there's a real convergence in transgender thought today. Would that change any of what you talked about in 1991, you think? I mean, my view of feminism is 
to quote Nora of In the Doll's House, that, you know, before everything else, I am a human being. I'm you know, not defined by gender or by any other imposed attribute. You know, I go back to Simone de Beauvoir's not born but becomes a woman. I've always held that that should be as true for those born a man. I mean, these are all heavily acculturated roles. To me, that's at the heart of the movement for women's rights and for human rights. Susan Faludi, the other part of the book is Hungary, particularly focusing on World War II. But you do get into the nature of identity being Hungarian and being Jewish. A lot of things were new to me. One of them was that in Hungary, the Jews were not deported until very, just before, eight months before the end of the war. Did you know that yeah. before? I knew the sort of skeletal story of it, but I spent a lot of time reading a lot of very long and extremely depressing books about that chapter of Hungary's history. It wasn't till the Germans occupied in March of 1944 that Hungary's government deported what ultimately were two-thirds of its Jewish population. And it was done very quickly, very uh, systematically, starting in the countryside. And within six weeks, more than a half million Jews had been deported and, and exterminated. Something like one in three Jews who died in Auschwitz were Hungarian. And while apologists in Hungary like to say, oh, well, you know, we protected our Jews until the Germans forced us, the, the, the story is much darker that the Hungarian government jumped to, was extremely eager. Eichmann, who was sort of overseeing this with only a handful of German officers in the country, remarked on a number of times on the avidity with which the Hungarian bureaucrats and uh, Hungarian gendarmes and the, you know, the whole apparatus of government was even more eager, as he pointed out, than, than the SS to be rid of their Jews. One quick question. I always knew it as the Treaty of Versailles, not the Treaty of Trianon. So the Treaty of Trianon came afterward. They were related. The Treaty of Trianon in 1920 basically shrunk Hungary to okay. a little peanut. Half to two-thirds of landmass and population was lopped off. But you have to remember, Hungary was actually never an independent country. This is kind of a fantasy of, oh, we were this great empire. In fact, Hungary was part of Hungarian-Austrian Empire. When you look over the many uh, centuries, what you find is a country that was actually independent for a very tiny amount of time, which explains the great identity crisis of Hungary, this sort of compensatory fantasy about uh, everything is, you know, Magyar this and Magyar that and authentic. And my father very much bought into that. He was always going on about, you know, the authentic folk culture and the authentic cuisine. And so much of the time I spent in Hungary, I felt like I was watching these two identity searches, my father's on the gender front and, and Hungary's, you know, long and desperate quest to figure out who are we as a nation. Also, who are the Jews of Hungary, which plays a role in, in the darkroom, too. Yes, it's a really complicated story. So going back to the 
latter half of the 19th century, Hungary was one of the last countries to really industrialize. And unlike Germany, which had sort of a burger class who were very involved in modernizing the country. Hungary's, you know, Christian gentry was not particularly interested in pursuing that. So there was kind of a what is referred to as the uh, social pact of assimilation that unfolded in these years where the aristocracy of Hungary sort of made this deal with a particular sector of Hungarian Jews, the more affluent Hungarian Jews. This didn't really include, you know, the majority of Jews who were as poor as the rest of the country. That wealthy Hungarian Jews, if they devoted themselves to building up the country, to building up the industry and the banks and, um, you know, all the apparatus of a modern state, that they would be recognized as Hungarian. Aside from the economic motivation, the Hungarian Christian aristocrats were slightly less than 50% of the population. So they needed another, they basically needed another 5%. So they declared Hungarian Jews as Magyar as long as they spoke the language. How did you find that out? The story of how the Jews became Magyar and then were suddenly Jews again was that in a number of textbooks you read, or Hungarian history is not assigned in <laughs> in high schools in the U.S. But yes, it's a you know widely known story among Hungarians. It's a period called the Golden Age of Hungarian Jewry because this particular sector of Hungarian Jews who were granted sort of keys to, to Emerald City jumped in with great enthusiasm. I mean, Budapest itself became the artistic capital and became you know, sort of the Paris of Eastern Europe, thanks largely to assimilated Hungarian Jews who were a vast, wildly disproportionate number of artists, musicians, writers, journalists, professionals, doctors, uh, lawyers. And ironically, everything that we think of as genuine, you know, authentic Hungarian culture so much of that was actually created um, by Hungarian Jews out of an enthusiasm, a deep love of, of the country, and a belief that by loving the country, they would be loved back. Which they were not, eventually. Right. I mean, well, it was a good run for that period. But really, even by the turn of the century, it was clear that Jews would ultimately not be accepted. And then in the ramp up to World War II... I mean, really, after the Treaty of Trianon, when the country was shrunk to the reduced uh, version of itself, all the anger around Trianon was projected onto onto the Jews, and it was well, the Jews caused this. Of course, the Jews had nothing to do with it, but you know, this would not be the first time the Jews would be blamed for <laughs> something well, in Europe. <laughs> well, in Hungary now, um, the anti-Semitism is pretty rife, and so is. It's kind of a, it's hard to say what exactly it is. You haven't been back recently or have you? Uh, Yeah, I was back last summer. And what's it like now? So really, Hungary is kind of on the verge of a neo-fascist state with a strongman reactionary government, which it's had since 2010. The prime minister, Viktor Orban, has many qualities in common with Trump. He's referred to as the dictator. <laughs> you know, Trump wanted to build a wall. 
Orban has already built a, a fence along its borders to keep out Syrian refugees. The level of anti-Semitic rhetoric has only escalated in you know the past half dozen years. Um, there's been you know desecrations of Jewish cemeteries, attacks on worshippers coming out of synagogues, uh, attacks on rabbis. You know, it's not just Jews who have become the scapegoat. Uh, Roma, Roma have become an en- enormous target of, of hatred. Eighty years later, we're coming back to the 30s. It looks frighteningly that way. I mean, of course, one hopes that history doesn't repeat itself exactly. But yeah, I mean, Hungary is a country with um, right-wing, you know, militias marching on the main streets of Budapest, you know, on a Saturday night. And the uh, current government is doing nothing to discourage this, you know, sort of outpouring of rage against groups who are considered the other. Among those are, you know, the LGBT population. And in the late 2000s, gay pride parades in Budapest have been set upon by innumerable right-wing groups who've beaten people up and committed vicious, violent attacks while the police turned a blind eye. Susan Faludi, one question that in the back of my mind, because you don't explain it, his, her, Stefan, Stephanie's parents, your grandparents, they broke up. They were, it was kind of a, an arranged marriage. They were together. It mm-hmm. didn't work. They kind of broke up before the war. Your father saved them. They were back together. They went together to Israel. Why did they stay together in Israel if they didn't like each other? You know, if I could explain any marriage. <laughs> they were apart and they were forced together. Why would they mm-hmm. stay together after the war? Did you get an answer? I don't know because I didn't meet them. My grandfather died in 1967, and so I was still quite young. And my father would not speak, didn't speak to my grandparents. So they didn't come visit. We didn't go over there. So I don't know. A lot of things were changed by or put into perspective by World War II. I mean, they were deeply scarred and traumatized and forced to and take refuge in a country that, you know, neither of them really wanted to move to Israel. You know, they were very assimilated, patriotic Hungarians. This is, this was not in the game plan. So, and my grandmother never learned Hebrew very well and sort of stuck to this small Hungarian community in, in Tel Aviv. So I think it had a lot to do with just hanging on to the few remnants of the past that were familiar. It wasn't a happy marriage in in those later years. I mean, my grandfather died very early, and my grandmother lived for another, you know, 30 years. So um, so there was a lot of time when she was on her own. This book reads almost novelistic. Sure, there are historical segments and segments about identity, but a lot of the story reads like a daughter-and-father relationship was it different for you writing those segments more in a novelistic manner? Very much so, although I have to say if, if I had tried to make this up, nobody would have believed it would have been an awful novel <laughs> or just a rather garish one. 
you know, that was a big departure for me. I mean, I'm used to writing about public and political issues. But I felt like, you know, my father had driven a Trojan horse into my uh, political and professional domain. And I didn't feel I could go forward without in writing about gender issues without admitting to my own experience. That said, I went into it with my journalistic training and, you know, showed up on the first visit to Budapest with, you know, a stack of reporters' notebooks and 10 pages of questions typed out. But ultimately, I had to drop that pose of impartial observer because this is a story I was a deep participant in. Three people who are not in the book, though they exist on the periphery, your mother, your brother, your husband. I assume in all cases, the decision was made mutually to do that. Yes. You know, my father asked me to write her story, but my mother and brother did not, you know, and they themselves have a story to tell. You know how families are. Everybody has a very different experience of it. So I was very cognizant of that and wanting to respect their privacy. Your brother experienced what you experienced in terms of having a father having a change. You must have talked about it. With oh, absolutely. Him. We talked about it and I, you know, showed my brother and my mother, the manuscript, and we had lots of conversations. For you then, when you look back on this, the question of how you are changed, of course, always a book changes you. Were there any deep changes other than better understanding of your father? Maybe one of the most important was what it did for my Jewish identity. Because I always felt very Jewish growing up. I grew up in a you know, pretty much Catholic neighborhood you know, north of New York City and always sort of identified as being Jewish, even though we never celebrated any Jewish holidays. We never went to synagogue. This is another one of my father's transformations of every Christmas. He was out there putting, you know, twice as many Christmas lights on our house as anybody else. And the high holidays for us were Christmas and Easter egg hunts. So I didn't know why I felt that way other than sort of a resistance to my uh, number of anti-Semitic neighbors. And in working on this book, well, first of all, I rediscovered a whole side of my family, my you know, Hungarian Jewish family, and went to Israel and connected with them. And I mean, it's this far-flung diaspora. So in Switzerland, I have relatives in Australia, and was so warmly invited back into the fold at a very late age. And in studying the Hungarian Jewish experience and immersing myself in my father's you know, history and childhood, all of that sort of restored to me my sense of why I felt Jewish and gave me a much deeper connection and understanding of who I am and where, where I came from. This being recorded the day after the first debate between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, and the crap show goes on, I guess what I see is such extreme misogyny in this country, even among people on the left. It's shocking to me. I'm sorry. I just, but you, you've been writing about this for a long time. Do you see any transitions here? I mean, 
Is it just a continuation? In 2001, you said things changed for the worst. Are we dealing with another after effect of 9-11? I don't know how much it has to do with 9-11, although I suppose it's the ongoing fear that we're not safe. And when people don't feel safe, feel that you might be under attack, um, they do retreat to caricatured view of a lot of things and especially gender and, you know, sort of wanting John Wayne to come along and rescue them. That said, I I can't imagine that people actually think Donald Trump is going to rescue them from anything. Uh, Maybe put them on a reality show and win them a million dollars. But, you know, what I've been seeing in this campaign is just a kind of culmination of a gender drama that's been going on for at least 20 years in which a lot of men who are rightly angry, who feel who've been left by the wayside by economic change, have been manipulated by the right into believing that their problems can be laid at the doorstep of minorities and especially women, women as embodied by Hillary Clinton. I mean, when I was working on Stift, my book on masculinity. Um, I was interviewing a lot of these, you know, sort of men who felt marginalized in the 90s. And over and over again, I heard, well, (laughs) Hillary Clinton, she's, you know, at this point, she's just the first lady. You know, she's the power behind the throne. She's, you know, she's calling the shots. Um, You know, she's uh, the one who's uh, destroying my life. And here we are all these years later, and we're, you know, seeing the same thing play out in extremists with a Republican candidate who's, you know, talks about Hillary being crooked and conniving and secret manipulator. What I saw was actually online. A woman was complaining, well, why is she wearing red? And I'm thinking, why not? (laughs) You know, or she's smiling too much or she's overprepared. And you look at this and you turn it around and go, well, what if it was a man? Those things would not be coming up. I mean, the root of all evil, I mean, it boggles my mind. And and finding leftists, for example, talking about the neoliberal world out there and Mm -hmm. suddenly throwing away the, the fact that we've made a lot of social gains, abortion, gay rights, uh, women's rights in general, civil rights climate change, granted not as far as many people want to go, mm-hmm. but movement in that direction, all of which could be erased by the Supreme Court and executive order. Right. And these so-called progressives talk about Hillary as a Gorgon. What's going on? Look back at how the second wave of uh, you know feminism emerged, uh, or particularly the the sort of younger, more radical feminist movement of the late 60s, early 70s came out of the left because women who were very involved in the anti-war movement and the civil rights movement woke up one day and said, well, how come we're fighting for everybody's rights and yet we're still supposed to be carrying coffee and we're, we're treated like, you know, sex objects who are just there to service the men. You remember the days of of anti-war marches where the uh, it was like chicks up front and women say yes to men who say no to Vietnam. There's a long history. Uh, just because you're quote-unquote progressive doesn't mean you're not a, a, a sexist. When I responded and I said, you know, what you're saying is 
these people will prevent me from getting married. The response to my saying, well, what about my issues is you're being selfish because I want my rights. And I'm like looking, these are progressives telling me this? It's as if there's this strange right-wing something penetrating so-called progressives in America. Well, I think that women's equality is a very, uh, a real equality, not just, you know, you can dress up like a, or you can, you know, just squeeze yourself into a male-defined world, but the feminism that is about changing the world so that it's not simply defined by men, that is a very radical proposition, and it means redistributing power in ways that people are are terrified of, right, left, and center. And it's very intimate. It gets into your personal household. It's not just a matter of, oh, okay, those people out there can, we'll throw them a few rights and it won't affect my life. This affects everyone's life and it's it's a scary proposition. I, I mean, I wish we were live right now. I would just be begging people, please, you know, <laughs> Go out and vote. Everything, the stakes have never been higher. It's not so much the people on the right. They've always been there. Mm-hmm. It's the people on the left. Mm-hmm. It's the people that I would think would be supportive. The people in favor of abortion rights mm-hmm. are ignoring it. Mm-hmm. I think there's an immense resistance to women having real authority. There's really no archetype for women exerting, wielding power except for the controlling mother and the wicked witch. And no wonder, because as much progress as women have made, if you look at any sector of society, politics, government, religion, sports, media, corporations, women have yet to to crack the critical mass proportion in positions of real, powerful decision-making authority. We have all of those categories, 15% or less of people with real authority are female. Um, So until that happens, we will not have, and I mean, the only way to have an archetype that we're comfortable with of women in power is to have women in power. Just as Barack Obama has now become an archetype for black men. Exactly. Susan Faludi, In the Dark Room is out, and you started thinking about your next book. Oh, not, not quite yet. Have but. you thought now about writing fiction now that you've done, <laughs> you've created real people, but they have voices, and they have the voices that could translate into fiction? Yeah. I mean, I think about it, but my father gave me such rich material, and I don't know how I could ever compete with that. (laughs) But you never know. You've been listening to an interview with Susan Faludi recorded in 2016 about her book, In the Dark Room, which became a Pulitzer Prize finalist in 2017. It is her most recent book to date. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.